when we were thinking about who should be the voice of this first event, Professor William Chittick's name readily came to mind for a variety of reasons. I just mentioned one of them. He has been in serious conversation and engagement with Islam and the Muslim tradition for almost half a century. I am not making any reference to age, because he began when he was very, very young. Now, how should I introduce William Chittick, who does need, who is not in need of any introduction? Instead, I tell you my connection with him. I first ran to his name when I was reading one of the major works of contemporary Muslim philosopher, Allah Muhammad Hussein Tabatabai, who died in 1981 in English. And I was so amazed to see the name of Professor Sayyid Hussein Anas with Professor William Chittick on the cover as co-translated and annotated. Who is this person who is in that uh, group and that caliber of great minds? To see his name along with those two major contemporary Muslim thinkers impressed me. So I wanted to know how he looks like. When I returned to Iran and began to work in the Iranian Academy of Philosophy, the name of the founder director of the academy, Sayyid Hussein Nas, came up again and again and again. And of course, people would talk about his very uh, good, sharp, top students. And guess whose name was always at the top? I then discovered that not only he has worked with uh, uh, Professor Nast and the like of Professor Nast, but also he has worked and studied with great mon minds of contemporary Iranian literary figures, <coughs> such as Baniyu Zaman Zafar and others, Jalal Humayi and others. Some of you who are Iranians or know about Iran know that they are all stars. All these connections created a mental image in my head uh, that pleasantly proved very fictitious when I met him. Because when I finally met him, there was not that pompous figure that I was thinking <laughs> in my head. Instead, I saw this extremely humble human being down to earth and enormous amount of modesty. And of course, when you look at the enormous experience and achievements he has had, that uh, even is doubly significant. You may have seen the short bio that we provided for you in the posters informing you uh, of the complex issues and areas that he has dealt with. But we know he has authored more than 30 books and more than 100 articles all dealing with complex areas of Muslim mysticism, philosophy, theology, intellectual history, and the list can go down. Some of these works include Science of the Cosmos, Science of the Soul, The Pertinence of Islamic Cosmology in the Modern World, <coughs> Ibn Arabi, Heir to the Prophet, 
the heart of Islamic philosophy, the Sufi, Sufi path to knowledge, the Sufi path of love. He has enriched Carlton University with his presence as one of the religious program's annual Davidson lecturer before, and also in 2007 as one of the participants of the international conference that uh, we uh, held here at Carlton to celebrate the 80th, 800th birth anniversary celebration of Rumi. And now we are delighted that he has accepted to become the first lecturer on the activities of the Carlton Center for the Study of Islam. Please join me in welcoming Professor Chittick to the podium for his lecture on the role of love in the Quranic world. sides of the whole issue of love in uh, the Islamic worldview. Uh, but I thought, you know, the particular issue, I thought, uh, just coming here today, Carlton, would give me a chance to, to think about uh, a statement which really struck me when I first came across it. And one of the sayings of Shams Tabrizi, you know, Shams is the very famous teacher of Rumi. A few years back, I was back was working on his sayings and translating them into English. And in one passage, he's talking about the Quran, and he says that the Quran is the Ishtmalmet. Now, it goes in Persian means that, you know, that means, probably the best way to translate it is the love book, something like the Shah Nome. Version of Ferdowsi, the great book of kings. Well, what is the uh, Quran? It's the book of love. Now, most people who read the Quran, especially nowadays, maybe don't get that impression. So I thought it would be an opportunity to work through the worldview that chance lives in, lived in, and what kind of notions allowed him to say something like that in a context where no one would have been surprised, it would have been not an unusual statement at all. Now, in order to do this, I, I'm going to run through a lot of material. So I hope you can bear with me. Um, now, we, first of all, we have to look back a little bit at the Quran and the way the Quran presents itself. The Quran, as you know, in Islamic theology, in the book itself, it presents itself as the word of God. In other words, it is God's own self-expression. 
the Quran presents, presents itself, introduces itself as the manifestation, as the disclosure of the divine nature. A book that explains who God is and what God does. Now, when the Quran does talk about the universe and human beings, it has it does so only in function of God's reality. In other words, the Quran has no interest in people in the world on their own level for their own sake. And the reason for this is fairly simple and straightforward from God's point of view. Nothing whatsoever exists on its own. Nothing is independent. Everything is dependent upon God. Therefore, from that point of view, everything needs to be discussed in terms of God. So, the Quran is a book, of, a book in which God introduces himself to human beings. Now, next question which quickly arises is, well, what exactly do you mean by God? Anyone who has ever thought about this word has probably realized that no two people understand the word in the same way. And the reason for this is fairly straightforward. No two people are exactly the same. So everyone has an individual standpoint through which perceptions and understandings are filtered. Now, nowadays, it is a commonplace of hermeneutical theory to say that people look at things through their own lenses. But this idea was already playing a prominent role in Muslim thinking a thousand years ago. It is what Shafti Fabrizi is talking about elsewhere when he explains why so many people fail to understand that the Quran is the book of love. I quote, he says, the flaw is that people do not look at God with the gaze of love. They look at him with the gaze of learning, or the gaze of science, or the gaze of philosophy. The gaze of love is something else. Now, talking about these different gazes, Shams has in mind Islamic disciplines, like jurisprudence, law, scholastic theology, peripatetic philosophy, each of which followed the rules of its own specific methodology. All of these disciplines, however, were similar in that they put God first and saw the world and human beings as contingent upon God. One of the major fact, uh, obstacles which people face nowadays when they try to understand the Quran is that our worldview is basically the opposite. Instead of putting God first, and by God I mean the ultimate reality, by whatever name you want to call it, we put ourselves first, and then we look upon God as contingent upon us. So all scientific and academic disciplines do this, explicitly or implicitly, in contrast to disciplines like Islamic jurisprudence, theology. Now, to sum this up kind of you know, succinctly, I can say that pre-modern scholars, especially in the Islamic context, took it for granted that God created man in his own image. They looked at the human realm as a derivative of the ultimate reality. 
in contrast, modern-day scholarship takes it for granted that man created God in his own image. Now, in other words, religion is considered a derivative of society, or psychology, economics, biology. The working hypothesis is that there is no reality out there, only various epiphenomena of the human situation. Now, let's go back to chance. According to chance, in order to see that the Quran is the book of love, we need to look upon God with the gaze of love, not the gaze of jurisprudence, not the gaze of engineering, not the gaze of neurobiology. But what exactly is love? For us nowadays, it is an emotion, typically understood through the lens of biology or psychology. It is one of the many epiphenomena of the human situation again, a byproduct of biological processes or social forces. But this is, from the Islamic point of view, to begin at the bottom rather than at the top. Rumi uh, contrasts the top view with the bottom view in this verse. He says, for the elect, love is a tremendous eternal light. For the common people, love is form and sensual. So in the Quranic worldview, love is identical with the eternal light of God. In order to understand love, we need to begin at the top with the divine reality itself. Once we know that God is love, and then we hear that God created man in his own image, then we should be able to understand <coughs> that love must come along with the package. If we can then grasp the reality of love, we might be able to learn something about the role of love in human affairs in the entire universe. Now, the fact that love is utterly central to both the divine and the human reality is a central point that underlies much of Sufi teaching, for those of you who are familiar with Sufism, but it is also strongly defended by the Muslim philosophers. They all make the same points about the centrality of love. The early Muslim theologians didn't pay much attention to love. They were too busy proving that God in his absolute transcendence uh, must be obeyed. So they weren't interested in love, which brings God much too close for comfort as far as the theologians were concerned. Now, to see how, God, how love fits into the Quranic worldview, we've got to go back to the Quran's basic teachings. The most basic of all of these can be boiled down to two axioms. First, there's no God but God. Second, Muhammad is God's messenger. Right? These two axioms of the Quran, as you know, when recited along with words, I bear witness, that is known as the shahada, the bearing witness, the witnessing. And the shahada is the first act of Muslim practice. <clears throat> now, when you look at the sentence, there is no God but God, take it on its own, it's called the formula of Tawheed. Tawheed means asserting the unity of God. It's the first principle of Islamic faith. 
a typical way to understand God as he presents himself in the Quran is to place in this formula any name of God mentioned by the Quran. For example, the Quran says that God is living, alive. What does this mean? This means that there is nothing alive but God. There is no true life but God's life. And the life that we experience is not, in fact, true life. If it were true life, there would be no death. Or again, the Quran says that God is knowing. This means that no one truly knows but God. Our knowledge is, in fact, ignorance, masquerading as knowledge. And what little knowledge we may have is a gift from God. As the Quran says, they encompass nothing of his knowledge, save as he was. Now, it would be very easy to go on in this manner, reciting, the, listing the so-called 99 names of God, putting it in the formula, and quoting Quranic verses, which make exactly that point. There is, um, what is totally clear from all these verses is that the Quran says that there is no true reality but God's reality, and that everything other than God is derived from the reality of God, always and forever. So that's the first axiom. The second axiom is that Muhammad is God's messenger, I said, which also means that the Quran is God's message. Part of this message, I remind you, is that God sent prophets to all human beings from the time of Adam down to Muhammad. Adam was the first prophet. Then the traditional number of prophets is 124,000, which leaves plenty to go around. Now, as the Quran puts it itself, every community has its messenger, its prophet. Now, so the Quran provides us two basic axioms about the nature of things. First, there's no reality but the supreme reality. Second, human beings get access to that reality only by way of prophecy or scripture messages. Now, one of the many ways the Quran talks about this dual perspective is in terms of two sorts of command, divine command issued by God, Amr. The first sort is often called the creative command. And by means of that command, God brings the universe into existence. The second sort is often called the religious command. And by means of the second command, God issues instructions. The crowd mentions the creative command in many verses. Typical, most succinct perhaps is, I quote, his command, God's command, when he desires a thing, his command, when he desires a thing, is to say, be. And it comes to me. This command is eternal, which means that it is outside of time and that God is always bestowing existence because he never changes. This is a very important theological point. It explains why Muslim theologians never were able to understand God's creative activity in terms of deism. Deism, you know, is the notion that grows up in late Christianity, I suppose, and it, certainly it's extremely common today. Deism is the idea that God created the universe at the beginning. Let's say at the time of the Big Bang, if you like. And then God more or less ignored the universe no great interest in him, leaving the universe to its own devices. 
you know, Benjamin Franklin and all those people in America uh, who were deists. Uh, the Quranic view is rather that we exist at this moment because God is saying, be to us right now. There's none of this way back in the beginnings. Now, by means of the religious command, the other kind of command, God issues instructions, the Ten Commandments, for example. God tells people what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. He directs them to perform certain activities, and he tells them to avoid other activities. Now, notice that implicit in the notion of the religious command is the idea of free will. Which is to say that the religious command is directed at those who have the capacity to accept it or reject it. Those who follow the command are called abdens, servants, servants of God. The most obvious way in which the creative command differs from the religious command is in this question of free will. People are free to obey or disobey the religious command, but no one can disobey the creative command. From the standpoint of the religious command, only those who obey are called servants. From the standpoint of the creative command, everything is God's servant by definition, because God is constantly recreating everything with the eternal word, be. So, from this point of view, we have two sorts of servant, in keeping with the two sorts of command. The first sort of servant, first sort are compulsory servants. Everything in the universe fits into the category. The second sort are voluntary servants, who are also compulsory servants, uh, because they're being created by God all the time as well. But in addition, they freely choose to follow the religious command. Now, in short, the, the creative command is a direct consequence of Tawheed. There is no God but God. There is no creator but God. There is no reality but God. There is nothing that bestows being but God. The statement uh, of Tawheed explains the nature of things by saying that God alone is truly real and that everything else is contingent. And he commands things to be and they are. The religious command is a direct consequence or corollary of the second half of the Shahada. Muhammad is God's messenger. God's act of sending prophets brings the religious command into existence. So the Quranic worldview distinguishes between the realm of being, which is the actual situation of all of reality, and the realm of religion, in which people are instructed to recognize the fact that they are in fact compulsory servants of God and the people are requested to employ the free will that they have however little it may be uh, the free will that they perceive in themselves they are requested to employ that free will in appropriate ways ways appropriate to their servant to the fact that they're servant now let me go back to love now and show how this is. What's the connection? Now, in the Quranic world, 
love is a single reality that has different implications depending on how we look at it. From the standpoint of Tawheed, the first statement about being, the Quran's basic axiom, love motivates the created command. Why did God create the universe? Out of love. From the standpoint of prophecy, the second axiom, love brings the religious command into existence. Why did God send prophets? Out of love for his creatures. Now, then what exactly is love? First, I won't be so foolish as to try to define love. I think anyone who has been in love <coughs> knows that love is indefinable. And if this is true about human love, it is much more true about divine love. In Islamic texts, almost no one tries to define love. It's looked upon as an absurdity. Because it's too close to being itself. It's too close to reality itself. It's just beyond our understanding. <clears throat> Nonetheless, numerous books have been written describing the symptoms and the consequences of love. It's a whole genre. Uh, now, one of the more common ways to sum up the implications of love is to say that love is yearning for union. I think the point here is fairly clear. Lovers want to be together. When you're in love, you want together. So this is, as a, as a working definition of what love implies, it's a good one. It's very often cited in texts and very often applied. Now, if we take into account both the creative and the religious command, we can see and this, of course, is subject to revision. I'm only beginning this book at this stage. I've got another year and a half of research before I sit down and make my final. Uh, anyway, my final take on this. I think at the, at the outset, it seems to me that the Quran makes 10 basic points about love. Now, the first of these I've already, already referred to. And it is simply that God himself is identical with love. Uh, when the Quran talks about God as love, the, the, word, uh, the words used, for those of you that know Arabic, one is wood, one is pub, both of which are in, in theology, they're considered synonyms. Um, in the usual list of the divine names, or the 99 names, Al-Wadud is given as a name of God from wood. Al-Wadud means Dramatically, it means lover, and it also means beloved. One of those Arabic forms which has both an active participle and a passive participle. So, that name, which is used in the Quran, means that there is no lover but God, and there is none beloved but God. Okay. So, briefly, God is alone is a true lover, and God alone is truly worthy of love, the basic significance of the same. Now, if we look at God in terms of himself, as theology does all the time, to say that God is both lover and beloved also means that God is identical with love itself. Uh, someone called Adelami, 
author of the first, the earliest Arabic book on love from a philosophical, theological, Sufi perspective, mixing perspective. <coughs> Puts it this way, I quote, he says, the root of love is that God is eternally described by love. God loves himself for himself in himself. Here, lover, beloved, and love are a single thing without division, for he is unity itself, and in unity, things are not distinct. This is a book written a thousand years ago uh, of love. And it, and the, the, the notion here is it's a very common one. The most, it's the earliest, clearest I found. Now, so the basic, most basic Quranic teaching about love is that God is identical with love. And that given the fact that God is one, that love is his own love for himself. But the moment we take the universe into existence, we have a different picture. It's more complicated. The Quran refers to some of the implications. Once we have a universe, we say, okay, we have God here, and we have a universe here. <coughs> in a verse which is quoted, this chronic verse is quoted more than any other verse about love. There are lots of verses about love, but this one is the key to much discussion. It's the one, I, again, I haven't, taken a, I haven't done a statistical study, but I, just from my experience in reading these texts for the last couple of years, I've really been focusing. This is the <coughs> verse that everyone comes back to. And the verse is basically, you he loves them as they love him. Now, if you get, if you analyze this statement closely, the way it's done in traditional text, you see we have four basic statements. First, he loves means God is a lover. He loves them means human beings, which in the context of these objects, are God's beloved. The second statement. Third statement, human beings are God's lovers. And the fourth statement is, God is the object of their love. <coughs> we have four issues going on here. And I separate them out, not because I'm inclined to do so, but because the text separates them. <coughs> it's very clear that these issues are, are addressed. Uh, each of them, some often together, and often independently. I never turn this thing on. All right. <laughs> anyway, I think my voice carries. Oh, That's not that a problem. Better? Is that better? Yeah. Yes. Well, good, I'm sorry I didn't turn on the music. They should have been quite a bit Okay. If we look at these four statements, and then we look and say, okay, is these statements, are these referring to the creative command? Or are they referring to the religious command? <coughs> or are they referring to both commands? Well, I maintain that, and the text maintain that they're referring to both commands. There's no reason you cannot read these as statements of the actual situation. And as statements, as recommendations, as it were, to human beings to act correctly. Now, let me go through this. The verse just quoted says, He loves them. Okay, so we learned that God is a lover. We've already heard it a daily me explain that God loves himself. <coughs> but, uh, 
But here it says that he loves them, and this is God's eternal word. So given that God is eternal and unchanging, his love for human beings is also eternal and unchanging. However, so God loves us long before we were ever created. To say this, however, does not mean that human love for God is eternal, because God's love for us precedes our existence. But love, when we use that word, we have in mind, usually, typically, and in the text, a two-way street. No one wants to love someone and have no reciprocation, right? You love, well, you want love in return. So God's eternal love motivated him to create the universe so that would, there would be someone to love him in return. Now, in the Quran, God's love for the universe and for human beings, <coughs> his creative love, is most often called the rahman, mercy, compassion. Etymologically, rah designates the quality of a rahim. A rahim is a womb. The basic meaning of this word rah, mercy, is a mother's love for her children. Now, there are a number of sayings of the prophet which confirm this understanding. For example, the prophet said, Surely God is more merciful toward his servant than a mother is toward her child. Now, <clears throat> notice here that this saying can be read, should be read, as a reference to God's love for all things. For all things in the universe are God's servants. The, God, the Quran makes this point explicitly by associating the universal servanthood of all things with the name Al-Merciful, Ar-Rahman, from this verse. The Quran says, There is no one in the heavens and the earth that does not come to the Al-Merciful as a servant. Everything in the heavens and the earth is a servant of the Al-Merciful. That is, the one who has this created love. The Quran also uh, talks about this name, all mercy, Rahman, as a synonym for the name Allah itself. It says, among other things, that God's mercy embraces everything. His love embraces everything. Now, in other words, God is fundamentally merciful and loving. And this, of course, is present in the, the form of the consecration. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, the name of God, the all-merciful, the ever-merciful. Commentaries of the Quran commonly explain that the name all-merciful, Rahman, designates God inasmuch as he loves all beings without exception, whereas the name ever-merciful refers to a more specific sort of love. So mercy is a kind of love, but mercy and love are not synonymous. The basic distinction between the two is that love is mutual. Mercy only goes one way. God loves human beings, but people can't have mercy on God. God has... Uh, so, God loves human beings, human beings can love him back. God has mercy on human beings, human beings can't have mercy on God. So, what do human beings do? If they have mercy, yes, they have it. It comes with the divine image. It should be given to others. So mercy is a quality which 
is due to other features, like ourselves. Now, this verse of mutual love says he loves them. So God's love is directed specifically at human beings. In the discussion of the object of love, the big discussion is, you know, typically brings in the issue of beauty. Jamal and Husky, both words are used. Beauty, like love, is impossible to define. But we all have some idea of what it means. In Islamic texts, beauty is typically explained as that which attracts love, that which is lovable. People love things because they find them beautiful. Now, this is not an accident of biology or of psychology, but rather a direct consequence of the creative command. The prophet expressed the divine root of love in a very famous saying, God is beautiful and he loves beauty. So God himself is beautiful. He loves beauty. So beauty is there to be loved in imitation of God. Now, if God is beautiful, the formula of Tilhi teaches that there is nothing beautiful but God. When God loves, he is loving beauty. And he alone is truly beautiful. So he is loving his own beauty. He loves his own beauty first by loving it in himself, and second by loving it in uh, created things, as it is reflected in creation. <coughs> The Quran says that God is described by the most beautiful name. In addressing mankind, the Quran says, God formed you, and he made your form beautiful. Uh, in addressing creation generally, he said, the Quran says, he made everything that he created beautiful. Thus, when the verse of mutual love says that God loved them, it means that God is loving his own beauty uh, reflected in the form of human beings. And of course, the prophet said, reiterating the Bible, God created Adam in his own form. And the form of God is the form of the most beautiful names. So as the Quran puts it again, we created human beings in the most beautiful fashion. It doesn't mean the best, it means the most beautiful. That which incarnates all of the most beautiful names. Now, one can say that Islamic anthropology, by that I mean the Islamic notion of human nature, is founded on these two parallel statements. One is God loves the beauty. The other is God loves them, human beings. God loves human beings because they encapsulate and reflect the totality of the divine beauty, that is, all the perfections designated by God's most beautiful name. Human beings alone were created in the form of God's all comprehensive beauty. They alone were taught all the names, according to the Quran. <coughs> now, from about the 13th century, Sufi authors, in particular, commonly explain the unique status of human beings by a saying which was attributed to the prophet on shaking ground, but anyway, it was quoted all over the place. <coughs> and the, the, the saying says, 
God is talking. I was a hidden treasure, and I loved to be recognized. So I created creatures that I might recognize. So the human role in creation is epitomized by the word recognition. By teaching Adam all the names, God gave him the ability to recognize him in the entirety of his reality and the fullness of his creative manifestation. Not simply in the traces and properties of a limited number of attributes. So human beings alone have the capacity to recognize God, and this means that they alone have the capacity to love God in a full sense of the word. You can't love something fully if you don't know it. The verse of mutual love says, they love. Human beings love. If you read this in terms of the creative command, this means that human beings were created to be lovers. They cannot avoid being lovers. At the same time, there's no lover but God. So he. So the root and source of human love is God's love. Rumi, among others, frequently talks about human love is the reflection of God's love in the world. In one of his prose works, I mean, I could quote, you know, Rumi for this whole paper, but what's really interesting is you find these things all over the place. Anyway, I'll quote Rumi on this one because he's so expressive as usual. The prose work, he says, <clears throat> What place is man's farm plot within which grows the crop of flesh and skin and bones for these aspirations and these desires are mine, pure attributes. God is speaking. I was a hidden treasure, and I love to be recognized. So our love for God, in other words, is God's love for himself. The verse of mutual love says they love him. This means not simply that people love by definition. Created command, they love. That's what we do. But also that people love God by definition. They cannot not love God. And they cannot, in fact, love anything else because, in the last analysis, all others are simply the signs of God, the manifestations of God, the creations of God. All things are manifestations of His beauty, they're the traces of the properties of His most beautiful names. So when you love something, you're loving his beauty in reflective form. Again, Rumi, typical, all of the hopes, the desires, loves, and affections that people have for different things. Father, mother, friends, heavens, earth, gardens, palaces, knowledge, activity, food, drink. All these are desires for God, and these things are veiled. Now, if people don't recognize that there's no beloved with God. Uh, and if they don't accept that they are servants of the all-merciful by definition, this is simply because, as the Quran puts it, Adam forgot. People have inherited their father's forgetfulness. And this is precisely, in Islamic view, why God sent prophets. So this brings us to the role of the religious command. Until now, because love is built into the universe. There's no escape. 
from the standpoint of the creative command, God said, be out of love for creation. From the standpoint of the religious command, this same love motivated God to remind people who they are by sending the prophets. And the role of the prophets is to provide guidance so that people can recognize God and love him in return. Now, just as God's creative love is identical with the all-comprehensive divine mercy, God's guiding love is identical with a specific kind of mercy directed toward those who live up to the innate beauty of their souls. So the theologians talk about the difference between the love or the all-merciful mercy, the mercy associated with the name all-merciful, and the mercy of Rahman, and the mercy associated with the name Rahim the ever-merciful. And they say, the first, all-merciful, extends to all things without exception. And ever-merciful is focused on the people who go to paradise. Now, the verse of mutual love says, he loves them. In light of the creative command, this means that God loves human beings because of the beauty of their form. In light of the religious command, it means that he instructs people how to live up to their form, created in the image of the most beautiful way. But his parents offer guidance to their children. In terms of the creative command, God loves human beings unconditionally. In terms of the religious command, his love is conditional condition upon their response to it. The Quran refers to the conditionality of love. And this verse, say, it's addressed to Muhammad. So Muhammad is being told to say this to the people. Say, Muhammad, if you love God, people, if you love God, then follow me, follow Muhammad. And God will love you. So in order to, although God loves you in any case, if you want God to love you even more, then you have to follow Muhammad and then God will So this specific verse provides the rationale for Islamic practices for the Sunnah. Uh, simply because in, in the Prophet is embodied the beautiful character traits of Quran. So the Quran says you have a beautiful example in God's messenger. The fact that God's messenger Muhammad is beautiful <coughs> is sufficient proof that God loves him. Well, God loves the beautiful. So, Muhammad should be followed because he is God's beloved. If people do follow him, they also can become worthy of God's love. Now, the Quran explains how people can become worthy for God's love in many verses using the word love. For example, it says that God loves those who do what is beautiful. God loves those who repent, who have trust who are just, etc. It also says what God does not love. God does not love the wrongdoers. He doesn't love the workers of corruption. He doesn't love the transgressors. Now, as creatures, he loves them. Because they're the object of the creative command. It's as people who disobey the religious command that he does not love them. So they're not earning that second kind of love. The first kind, no one can avoid it. Now, the reference, notice, now all these verses is to the inner beauty of the soul, not just activity. 
Alba Valley, many others, refer to the achievement of the inner beauty of the human soul by the expression becoming characterized by God's character traits. This means that the most beautiful divine names come to be actualized by the human soul, which is created in the form of those names, but the names remain now, in a sound hadith, the prophet quotes God as saying that when his servant approaches him through performing good works, that is, by following the prophet, by following the sunnah, then God says that he will, he will love this servant. Then, in the hadith, when I love him, God says, I am the hearer with which he hears, the eyesight with which he sees the hand with which he holds, and the foot with which he holds. Now this is precisely becoming characterized by God's character traits. It also points to the final goal of lovers in their love, which is union. Union, coming together, means gaining nearness to God. Not by moving from here to there, but by linking up to the actual situation. The Quran says that God is with you wherever you are. But until people walk in the path of the prophets to the point where God begins to love them, they cannot wake up to the manner in which God is with them right now. So, God loves those who become characterized by beautiful character traits, and these character traits are nothing but his own attributes. God himself is love, and as the inscription on his throne reads, my mercy takes precedence over my wrath. Mercy embraces everything. Given the prominence of mercy as a divine character trait, uh, it follows that the predominant character trait of those whom God loves is mercy and compassion toward all things. This is why God addresses Muhammad, again, the most beautiful example, with the words, we sent you, Muhammad, only as a mercy to all the world. So, from this point of view, from the Quranic point of view, love for one's neighbor is predicated upon love for God. I mean, the first commandment defeats the second commandment. Love for one neighbor, to one for God, comes first. And if you encourage people to have mercy and compassion on others without encouraging them to love God first, you're encouraging what is impossible. Now, the verse says, they love. In terms of the creative command, this means love is woven into human nature. We can't avoid loving. In terms of the religious command, it means the human awareness of their own loving nature depends to a large degree upon their free will in order to actualize their innate love, to recognize uh, their need for God, they need to put the religious into practice. In the last point, God is beloved, they love him. In the creative command, it means you can't love anything else because there's none beautiful but God. In light of the religious command, it means that people need to recognize who it is that they really love. This is why Rumi, for example, goes to the creative case, the distinction between true love 
and metaphorical. True love recognizes God is the object. Metaphorical love gets tripped up by the appearances. It's not to say that metaphorical love is false love. It's simply immature love. This lack of inner vision prevents it from seeing the point made by the Arabic proverb that the metaphor is the bridge to the reality. So I've just given you nine ways to talk about love. And I've got text for all of these questions. Now the tenth way is simply to say that the final goal of love is tohid in its deepest sense of the word. This means to reestablish the unity that existed before creation. It is the it is what happens when lovers reach union with their beloved, whether this happens in this world or in the next world. So let me let me simplify or take it from a slightly different point of view. This, these ten ways of talking about love. Sorry, I'm going over, I suppose, but um, You just say that love has four basic stages. Islam is thought generally, and then the Quran, this is all implicit. The first stage is God in himself, without regard to the universe. When God himself is love, the lover, and beloved. The second stage, we take the universe into account. Here God is viewed as the origin of the universe, the creator of the universe, that which brings the universe into existence. Love motivates God to create the universe so that the divine beauty may be recognized by others and loved by others. Love is the governing force of the universe. It drives everything towards its own perfection and its own completion. And eventually, love takes everyone back where it came from. Mahad, the third principle of Islamic faith, the return to God. Everything goes back to God by, by necessity. There's no escape from going back to God. This, in fact, the text calls the compulsory return. Everyone's compelled to go back to God, just as everyone is a compulsory servant. Now, in the third stage of love, human free will is at issue. Human beings are called upon to return to God voluntarily. All things are, in any case, going back. Uh, but God, out of love and mercy, sends guidance so that people will understand that the return is the fulfillment of their loves and their desires. They should be striving to go back with the enthusiasm of lovers going home to their beloved. That's the third. In the fourth and final case, the ultimate goal has been achieved. The two lovers have been united, and people enjoy the embrace of their beloved. Now, notice that the last stage, the fourth stage, is the reestablishment of the first stage. At the beginning, there was only God. At the end, there was only God. The difference is, at the beginning, people had no awareness of God or themselves. They didn't exist. At the end, they're fully aware of God and themselves. They have now awakened to the fact that God is the hearing with which they hear, and the eyesight with which they see, and the hand with which they grasp, the feet with which they walk. So now, although only God is there, human beings are also there as implicit realities in 
the unity of God. Now let me let me conclude last paragraph by coming back to Shams Tabrizi, his statement that the Quran is the book of love. I alluded to the fact that he was not alone. I should at least give you one other example. Let me cite uh, a short passage from a commentary on the Quran called Kash Falasarach, the unveiling of the mystery. It's the longest pre-modern commentary on the Quran in the Persian language. As far as I know, I don't think it's any nearly as long as this. Uh, it's ten volumes in modern edition. It was completed, written by a man called Rashiduddin Maywudi, completed in the year 1126, you know, make it a hundred years before Shams. And the book is full of discussion of the mutual love between God and man. And the ten points I mentioned are all there, either explicitly or implicitly. Now, in one passage, which is typical of the tone of the book, you'll get a text here. And this is discussions on love, because now we're talking about the issue of love, other issues, and other tones are appropriate. But the, the author wants to explain the meaning of this verse, very simple Quranic verse. Beginning of the Quran, 289, it's not very far. When there came to them a book from God. Here's his Persian explanation of what that verse means. And this is just the first stage. Just the intro to his explanation of what's going on. A book came to them, and what a book. For it was the Lord's reminder to his lovers. It was a book whose title was The Eternal Love. A book whose purport is the story of love and lovers. It was a book that provides security from being cut off, the remedy for unsettled breasts, the health of ailing hearts, and ease for grieving spirits, as a mercy from God, the Lord of the world. So, thank you. If there are questions, I can uh, address.